Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, listeners. Brad Kearns, ready for another rapid-fire Q&A show. I promise we're going to hit it hard because we're backing up. Got so many great questions. I like providing the long answers and the discussion points that we can all reflect on, but let's get through a ton of questions today in a lively, fast-moving show. Not even starting with any rapping, because today my mind not be trapping the right words, and I don't want to sound like a nerd, unprepared, kind of scared. We don't want that. Let's get going right with the show. Don't you know that was some rhyming anyway? I guess I can't help it today. Uh, The first question jumped the line up a little bit uh, from Gentry McGrath because he's an old-time triathlon dude. 48-year-old chiropractor did Kona in 88, 90, and 92. And I was out there in 87 and 89. So we never crossed paths out in the islands, brah. But now here we are with a question and a comment. So she's had a long history in the sport, qualified five times, and then came back years later in 2017 and uh, did Ironman Santa Rosa, bought the Dave Scott 12-week program, um, got sick before his big event in Texas, was doing this a little bit too hard kind of thing. Never lost weight during training, realized I was carb burning the whole time, exhausted most of the time, and still qualified for Kona, but I was fatigued and overreaching. Then I hired a coach, Chris Howth, a popular triathlon coach. I've heard his name come up a few times. I did a lactate threshold test. It said my threshold was 132. Ah, that terminology is so confusing. Um, I don't think he means anaerobic threshold. Uh, There's an aerobic threshold that they sometimes test for in the lab, so uh, be careful uh, zeroing in on the terminology used. might not mean what you think it means. Anyway, he trained under house guidance, did Kona in 1046. He says that's not great. Many people say that would be pretty darn good, Uh, but it certainly wasn't that 253 marathon from the Italian Stefano Passarello, who was on a show recently. What an amazing story. One of the greatest amateur marathon performances of all time in Hawaii. And he did it with that devotion to math training, that low heart rate emphasis, going out there, burning uh, fat because he was fasted before these long workouts that he did at a nice slow pace. And then when it was time to throw down in Hawaii, he threw down to the tune of a 253, which if you know marathoning, that's a pretty fantastic time just for a marathon runner. And this guy did it off the bike as an amateur in the heat and winds and fatigue from swimming and biking, uh, right up there with the great marathon performances in the professional field. Uh, So go listen to that show for sure. But Gentry uh, wrote in pointing out that there seems to be, quote, there seems to be some conflict in thinking and methodology between Passarello's story and all the aerobic, all the math stuff you talk about, and then Dave Scott's show, which was also a great recent show, where Dave says that you should uh, throw in some high intensity to get this myokine reaction and to get that boost to the cardiovascular system for rapid improvement. Uh, I, I agree, Gentry. That's a little confusing for the listener because um, Dave was talking a lot about 
um, you know, this purposeful training where you're going out there and you're doing these 40 second bursts of high speed effort in the middle of an endurance training session, uh, doing that frequently if you're inclined to. And we know that this delivers a training benefit. You can measure it scientifically that, uh, that stimulating that, uh, that high end for brief periods. Uh, Dave says it's not going to fatigue you very much and it's going to escalate your progress. Uh, and then we have the other side where, uh, we're touting uh, the extreme importance of never exceeding your aerobic heart rate when you're building an aerobic base, doing the vast majority of your training at comfortable heart rates to minimize the stress impact of training. And now we come to this fork in the road where, as Gentry writes, um, I'm restarting my training now after three months of very irregular training and working many hours as a chiropractor and fatigue. Should I go fully math or should I incorporate Dave Scott's philosophy of throwing in some high-intensity stuff? Well, uh, if Dave was sitting here next to me, I think we would both answer right away the very exact same answer, which if you're reporting that you haven't trained much and you've been working long hours and are fatigued in daily life, I think it's a very bad time to ponder uh, throwing in any intense training. So there's a reason that they call it base building, and the importance of base building has been validated by the great performances of all the elite athletes in every endurance sport for now almost 60 years, dating back to Arthur Lydiard, Peter Snell days. So if you're coming out of a tough period of life, you want to get out there and do some exercise, you can build your aerobic system, but the emphasis is on minimizing the stress impact of your workouts because you're not in a good state in real life. And in fact, I think another question came in about this. I'm not sure if I answered it on the air or was writing back, but someone was complaining about their energy levels at rest. And if you have poor energy at rest, you probably uh, are not a good candidate to do any form of endurance training. you got to get your health handled at rest. And while you're working on that objective, if you have bad energy at rest, uh, the probably the best and only form of exercise, quote unquote, training you should do is walking. And you can take 20 minute walks if it feels good and maybe work up to an hour walk. But the idea of going out there and putting on a heart rate monitor or taking a class in the gym or joining back up with your running group when you feel crappy at your work desk or crappy sitting around on the couch, that's a big problem. And I had to learn this the hard way because uh, when I was racing as a professional and traveling all over the world, uh, logging those frequent flyer miles, blasting myself in these hot, humid climates like down there in the Caribbean where we used to race a lot. It was extremely stressful to the body, and oftentimes in daily life, I was really tired. I slept so much, as I report a lot. I slept half my life during my nine-year career as a triathlete, 10 hours a night, two-hour nap every afternoon, and I had a lot of days where I was just dragging ass because I was still jet lag from flying home from New Zealand or uh, was sore and stiff and exhausted from a really challenging race maybe the previous weekend. And at those times, I told myself I should get my butt out there on the road and train because I was a professional athlete. But really, I think the right answer was, if you're exhausted in daily life, just get out there and do some walking, do some general everyday movement that's not strenuous, reminding you that Phil Maffetone says that even a workout that's well below your maximum aerobic heart rate, such as a moderate or brisk walk, still delivers a significant aerobic training effect. So walking around the block or pedaling your bicycle down to the farmer's market and filling your cute little basket and ringing your bell 
and, and writing home without even getting your heart rate over 100 beats a minute still delivers a measurable training effect that will help you when it is time to go and throw down and uh, train and compete at your uh, peak levels, okay? So getting through that one, take it easy, man. And relating to that uh, dilemma between what Dave said and uh, kind of the approach laid out where you're building uh, a strict base building period, you're not escalating your heart rate, I really think that um, the individuality is the huge overriding component here. I've talked a lot with Andrew McNaughton about these things. Of course, I talked to Dave on the air and got it all out from him and have tried different training methods in my own life and different things work at different times. So whatever worked for you last year uh, might have a high probability of working again this year, but maybe not. And you have to adjust and recalibrate on the fly and Whew, all the best laid plans and programming and planning can go down the toilet if you happen to catch a slight cold. So I really believe in the intuitive approach here. And like Dave says, if you accelerate your pace for 30 seconds at a time and maybe do that five times during an endurance training session, it's probably not going to fatigue the heck out of you uh, the following day or two days later. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're not disciplined and you're doing a lot of black hole training, or you never bother to take the time to really build a comfortable aerobic base and you're always pushing the very edge of your maximum aerobic heart rate or you're writing into a podcast to see if you can buy five more beats for some justification or some reason, uh, like we have uh, people advocating that you can go higher if you're fat adapted. And these things are kind of concerning to me because you're never taking the time to just have a steady build in your fitness without the interruption caused by high stress workouts or even moderately stressful workouts. So I'm uh, going to advocate in favor of uh, monitoring your body, taking what your body gives you each day and nothing more, and finally feeling whether you're motivated to deliver the five times 30 seconds, whether that feels good at the time on the road without Dave Scott there with a whistle uh, blowing and saying, okay, ready to go for the next one. Because sometimes that can alter your um, your intuition. If you're in a group setting, you have a coach there, you're trying to adhere to the guidelines, um, I want you to be a little more freewheeling and make sure that you're congruent in your mind and in your heart with uh, the workout that you're contemplating. How's that for uh, a nice, clever escape rather than taking sides and being dogmatic? Because there's a lot too much of that going on, uh, especially in the diet realm, but also in the endurance training scene. So let's just... Uh, Put that personal component in there into the mix. Chad from uh, a long time ago, sorry, bud, but he asks, hey, can running strides be added throughout the aerobic base building period? That's a nice segue from what we just talked about. Uh, I'm a runner. I believe there's a question that uh, a lot of experienced runners have. I'd also like your thoughts on safely transitioning into a high-intensity period. Could a few short, short strides, 10 to 12 seconds, be added after an aerobic run to help avoid the shock of shifting from aerobic base building to high intensity. I define a set of strides as four to six short buildups at quicker rhythm to work on mechanical efficiency. Nothing forced here. These feel very low in stress and seem to simply wake up the muscles and help with mobility. Short strides seem to be primal aligned, but I don't believe this topic has been addressed. Wow, what a beautifully written question. I love that, man. And if I um, could choose uh, those words out of my own mouth, I would probably answer like the last paragraph. So um, yeah, the strides are something that I'm a huge fan of because I believe that 
conditioning your body for sprinting is no funny business. It's serious business. I've now been officially sprinting uh, for 12 years uh, after you know a long career in endurance and then uh, getting into my 40s and realizing that I didn't have that total fitness component. All I had was uh, a narrow definition of fitness, the aerobic fitness, and realized I had to start getting into sprinting, strength training, and things like that. Um, so the first several years, um, you know, there's a lot of difficulty uh, recovering from these high impact workouts. Even if you're a pretty darn fit person that's been pedaling the bike and uh, running at aerobic pace for uh, long runs th- for your entire life, basically, there's something about uh, conditioning for sprinting. So rather than throwing down a sprint workout every seven to 10 days, as detailed in the Primal Blueprint, and then just jogging the rest of the time, I do see the value in doing these short bursts. Um, you know, he says 10 to 12 seconds. I think, you know, six to seven or eight seconds is plenty, just getting up the acceleration and then striding it out and then going back to a jog. During the, during the base building period, can you do that? Well, you know, let's just um, be patient, take our time here, and uh, allow these things to enter into the picture uh, as we transition into the high-intensity period. So give it a couple weeks of just doing strides, okay? So you're taking down your volume because you're leaving the strict aerobic base building period and kind of in a transitional phase before you really start throwing down formal sprint workouts. You don't want to get super sore or cause an injury because you did your first sprint workout in four months and you pulled a hamstring. So I love this, uh, this, this idea of just kind of a gradual transition over into the high-intensity period. It's really not something we wrote about in the book uh, at too much length. We just kind of took for granted that you're going from aerobic into high intensity. Obviously, your first sprint workout out of the gate is not going to be as impressive as maybe uh, six weeks into it when you have a few under your belt and you can uh, accelerate or maybe extend out the duration of the sprint. I know that um, after I have a good set of sprint workouts where I'm just doing 100 meters, so I'm going to do six times 100 meters on the football field and a lot of uh, really high-intensity drills where my heart rate is up there almost as high as the sprint, um, if I do a bunch of those, then I'll start throwing in some 200s uh, into the workout, which uh, I feel like is a lot more difficult to try to maintain that sprinting speed for double the distance. But I want to do those when I'm really fit, and I want to stick to the 100s when I'm building up to uh, peak fitness. So excellent, Chad. Thanks, man. Good stuff. Matthew says, what are signs of overtraining? In particular, what are signs that you are training at too high of your heart rate? Here's some signs. Number one, you're getting your ass kicked in the race by people. Number two, you're carrying excess body fat that you frustratingly can't seem to get off, even though you're watching your diet and even though you're burning a lot of calories and training. Number three, and I'm kind of being silly with um, this numbered list right off the top of my head, but the biggest one, the biggest, most important factor for uh, gauging your level of recovery and readiness for workouts is, this is a quote from Dr. Kelly Starrett, go listen to his show too, and look at his many videos on the Primal Endurance Mastery course, the master of mobility, flexibility, and all things related to that. Go check him out at mobilitywad.com, um, you know, as a CrossFit legend, uh, best-selling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard. Um, and I'll never forget uh, his quote where he says, you know, the number one marker is, quote, desire to train, end quote. There is research to validate that this is a more accurate indicator predictor of your recovery and readiness than any of the 
high tech stuff like checking your blood lactate levels or uh, checking your heart rate variability or using the uh, Massimo pulse oximeter to check your blood oxygen level when you wake up. If it's under 98%, could be a sign of overtraining. That's a cool little unit to get. Go look for it on amazon.com. They sent me one. I love it. And um, all these things are great. Heart rate variability. I've talked a lot about that. Done a couple shows. Go look in the archives for the show with Rhonda Collier. Um, so all these things are wonderful and they can kind of help ground you if you're feeling great, but you're actually in a uh, overstress, a, a, a reaching stage that Dr. Maffetone talks about in his videos where you're pumped full of stress hormones because you've been training super hard and overstressed. And for a while you get a boost you get kind of this stress response where you perform at a high level, but really you're playing with fire and you're doomed to crash and burn because you're in this overstress uh, catch-up state. So you can do the pulse oximeter. Yeah, the Massimo Mighty Max, I think it's called. It's a good unit. There's a lot of cheap ones. You're probably better off getting a good one. Um, and, you know, use all that stuff to your advantage. But desire to train trumps all. So when you wake up, and you get out of bed, or you sit on the edge of your bed. And I used to do this, uh, honestly, did this all the time. I'd sit on the edge of my bed, and I'd visualize the intended workout that I had planned for the morning. So if it was the 12-mile run, I would visualize myself jogging out of the neighborhood streets, and then onto the railroad tracks, and then taking the fire road down to the bottom of the canyon, and then cutting over through the green gate and going on the single track that's super steep, and then taking uh, over to the stagecoach trail, running that up to the very top and back onto the surface streets, and I'd actually go through the 12-mile run in my mind. And if I felt incongruent with that intended workout, in other words, if that seemed like a long, difficult, grueling session on that day because I was deep down in my brain, knew that I was too tired to attempt something like that, I would take heed and I would alter my workout plans. Sometimes I would do it on the fly. So I'd set out for the 12-mile loop and I'd get to the train tracks and I'd jog along on the flat and say, gee, I don't really feel that great. My legs are kind of heavy today. Uh, my mind's not into it. I'm not looking forward to descending in the canyon and then climbing back out. So I'd simply turn around and I'd have a four and a half mile flat run rather than a grueling 12 mile canyon run. And this was all intuitive uh, on the fly or, you know, getting in touch with that intuitive sense that you can get when you're sitting on the edge of your bed, visualizing the workout. Very, very important thing to do. Some people might scoff at this. Um, we're, we're deeply immersed into the world of um, highly paid coaches from remote location, programming your workouts day by day by day, far into the distant future, um, regardless of all the other personal variables in your life. So we got to put in a huge plug for that intuitive approach where you just think about what you're doing, see how it feels, and tap into your desire to train or lack thereof. And if you're listening to this show, if you have race numbers pinned on your wall, you're in that category of highly motivated, goal-oriented, type A, driven, success-oriented person that's not a lazy slacker that needs to listen to a different podcast called Get Your Ass Off the Couch Podcast, and we're trying to motivate you and uh, talk about the problems with you know laziness and sloth and whatever else becomes of people that uh, you don't take care of their health, don't sleep right, don't eat right, and truly have no energy and consequently no motivation to exercise. So we're talking in a totally different realm here, and we're mostly talking about dialing things back because your intuition is screaming out, begging you to listen, and you ignore it because you're looking at a printed schedule. So how about that, Matthew? Those are the signs of overtraining 
and training at too high of a heart rate is, you know, getting back into that um, uh, aerobic versus uh, extending beyond maximum aerobic heart rate. We've done so much content on that and the difference in uh, metabolic response and the importance of slowing down to go faster uh, in competitive circumstances. Okay. Oh, this is um, uh, more details from the same couple questions. So doing a lot of running, getting up to 50 miles a week running. I follow the no sugar, no grains lifestyle like Vinnie Tortorich touts. I love Vinnie's uh, acronym there. Very cool. Good elevator pitch to encapsulate what Primal Paleo is all about. Hey, look, just no sugar, no grains. That's the starting point. If you can handle that, you're looking good. And then you can go further and especially get rid of the refined vegetable oils that need to have equal billing as evil uh, members of the modern diet. So he's talking about his goals and understanding the importance of mafetone. But he says here in the last paragraph, and I want to get into this a little bit, it's kind of like that first question of the um, dilemma between listening to Stefano Passarello and his success with uh, slow-paced aerobic fat-burning training and then Dave Scott's commentary about throwing in intensity. And so he says, I jump back and forth between Phil Maffetone and Joe Friel. Joe defines aerobic threshold distinctly from anaerobic uh, isn't that the same as math heart rate with reactions to food and training being so different for different individuals? Doesn't it make you question the universal application of the math formula? Good question. Uh, I enjoy running more by running a bit more quickly and I want to be healthy. Another good statement, man. Yeah, we got to recognize that it's a little bit more fun to get out there and run a brisk pace uh, put the um, the the tunes in your in your ear and start rocking to the beat and getting out there and clicking along and uh, you know making that little bit of effort where you're starting to feel uh, the discomfort but you're in a nice groove and a nice pace and feeling like you're accomplishing something. I totally relate to that and we have to balance that desire to get out there and burn energy with the. Uh, long-term goals of being a successful competitor. And in your case, since you say I don't race, um, the long-term goal of being healthy and promoting longevity with your exercise efforts rather than uh, compressing your lifespan with ill-advised exercise efforts. Uh, I talk about that uh, cardiovascular disease risk factors that are popping up with serious athletes and going over to uh, search for Dr. James O'Keefe TED Talk called Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a slow pace. That's the title of the TED Talk. You can find that on YouTube. Um, I've already uh, discussed my displeasure with all these different terminologies that we're talking about with heart rate and prefer strongly recommend that you just focus on uh, maximum aerobic heart rate calculation of 180 minus your age and don't worry about the zones and the other thresholds and things like that that maybe an Olympic athlete should concern themselves with. Maybe, maybe not even important uh, even at that level. It's, it's about being healthy um, getting enough sleep instead of staying up late at night and reading articles about aerobic threshold versus anaerobic threshold and all that kind of stuff. Um, so if you get a little bit less analytical about the fine print and just remember to emphasize workouts at uh, that aerobic heart rate, that's going to be um, a, a great success factor. And questioning the universal application of the math formula, well, you know, what we're talking about here is uh, moderating the stress of your training because we exist in uh, very high stress modern life, chronically stressful modern life. We have 
traffic and commuting and jobs where we're extending out the hours of our concentration and dealing with difficult personal and business circumstances and just constantly in this rat race mode. We're overstimulated, uh, especially after dark with artificial light and digital stimulation that's throwing off our hormonal function. And basically, a lot of us are just grinding through life without taking proper time to uh, balance high-stress endeavors with rest and recovery. Please go to Mark's Daily Apple and read the uh, recent post. This is now uh, mid-January. I think it posted January 17th, January 16th, one of those days, uh, called Rethinking Recovery. And the great work from uh, Joel Jameson at eightweeksout.com, where he uh, kind of uh, helped set off a light bulb in my head about the importance of completely uh, rethinking uh, our mindset about rest and recovery. And in fact, recognizing, acknowledging that recovery and restoration require energy in and of themselves. It takes energy to recover. It takes energy for your body to restock depleted muscle glycogen or for the immune system to kick into high gear in the evening while you're sleeping and do its dirty work uh, with the um, white blood cells taking off and uh, attacking uh, foreign invaders and doing all those things to keep you healthy. This stuff requires energy. And we uh, often think of it in a flawed mentality where... um, you're you're just going and burning as much energy as you can at work uh, with soccer practice, coaching the kids, and then putting in your 40-mile bike ride, and then going up and getting up the next day and doing more, 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 and then collapsing in a heap and not really respecting the idea that, hey, today I'm going to direct my energy toward recovery and restoration rather than yet another workout or a few more miles on the bike or the run. That is a mind-blowing insight, at least to me. So uh, you can listen uh, on this um, Primal Blueprint podcast channel. So go subscribe to that one as well. And the posts are narrated every week by Tina Lehman, or you can go read it at Mark Stingley Apple, Rethinking uh, Recovery. Okay, so that was a great question. I love the detail. And uh, we're making some good making some good progress. Good show so far. Love the questions, especially uh, things like, Remembering that desire to train is number one and way more important than your morning heart rate or whatever else is going on. It trumps everything, man. Okay, Marco, I ran the Paris Marathon, crossed the finish line in 340, very proud. It was quite easy up to kilometer 32 and harder the last 10K. Imagine that in a marathon. (laughs) Actually, I'd planned to run it between 345, 350 based on my math test results and Maffetone's advice to run your marathon 15 seconds faster than your math pace. Uh, as it turned out, I was feeling really strong and ran the entire marathon at 825. My average heart rate was 16 beats higher than my math heart rate of 151, so I didn't blow myself out. That's pretty cool. I know Maffetone and his guys are doing uh, a comprehensive study of um, people reporting their marathon results and their math Uh, test result times so we can have some good data to make suggestions and try to predict the optimal marathon pace um, based on uh, heart rate and based on your math test results. And so uh, Marco provides all these split times for the race and he says, what do you think about that? Should I subtract 30 seconds per mile for my next marathon or should I estimate my race pace by looking at the pace when I run at math heart rate plus 15 beats? I also have a half marathon coming up, and I don't know how I'm going to estimate my goal pace. Okay, listen, first of all, 
uh, a race in the future, we don't know what's going to happen, man. It might be rainy, cold, windy, hot. Uh, you might not feel great on that particular day, and you might not be at your best. So we have to reflect that you take what your body gives you each day and nothing more, especially on race day. You can't force this stuff to happen just because you have data here on your watch that you conveyed in the email that you did so great at your last marathon. Whew, you know, just uh, give yourself a pat on the back. You did an incredible job. You beat your goal time and um, not to hurt your feelings or anything, but at your next marathon, you might very well be a half an hour slower than your goal pace just because might be the weather a good excuse, or it might just be your physical preparation, your readiness, and you just didn't have that much in the tank like you did on the first marathon. Sometimes uh, the first marathon that one ever does, uh, the first triathlon race of the season, in my case, there was always some magic there that was hard to recapture as you got into the grind of the season. Um, A lot of people think you can race yourself into shape, And there's definitely something to that, but there's also something to the idea that we generally abuse the stress-rest balance as endurance athletes, and uh, being 10% undertrained is vastly superior to being 2% overtrained. That's a quote from the legendary Paul Huddle. I should have that dude on the show. Uh, But, you know, take heed to that, and don't try to get too technical with your approach and pick a certain arbitrary time based on the last marathon results. Whatever you did in the last marathon worked really well. And I'm going to imagine that you didn't have this rigid idea at the starting line, but you started feeling better and better. And so you sped up a little bit and you cranked out a 340 instead of a 350. So good luck to you the next time. And I hope um, you're not chapping from uh, my insight here because I know a lot of times athletes want to have a precise answer where the expert says, look, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take 18 seconds off your math time because you succeeded in taking 15 seconds off. And it's a nice thought. It's steeped in uh, re- uh, rationality and perhaps scientific support. Um, but, you know, there's much bigger variables out there. All right, Marco. Hope that's all right. Oh, and Marco had a little add-on, which is I'm wondering if my true... Uh, math heart rate, my aerobic maximum heart rate, the point where I burn maximum fat per minute, could be different than 180 minus age. Should I do a lab test? I'm concerned because I've plateaued. This is kind of, I'm going to skip through a little bit uh, because um, this is such a common theme that we've heard over and over, and he's providing a lot of details about his own personal training. Maybe this volume and or type of training doesn't stress my body enough anymore. Um, What could I do? I could add five beats, I could perform a lab test to discover discover my true math heart rate. Um, I'm not big on that. Uh, I don't even know if labs are going to um, identify that. It depends on the lab. I think in the faster study, they were able to define that deflection point where the athletes were burning uh, maximum fat oxidation per minute. And I think that's the best representation in a laboratory setting of math. But this 180 minus your age heart rate is highly accurate and We've heard Phil Maffetone go on and on about that emphatically, that this is a time-tested formula that is really simple and convenient. And anywhere near that, it's not an exact science, but erring on the low side is uh, very valuable and favorable. You don't have to be pegged. This is not an exact science, but what we're trying to do is stimulate your aerobic system and minimize the stress impact of workouts. So in other words, if you are one of these people that 
can go 180 minus your age and add five beats, but you're not adding five beats because you're not sure, big deal. You're still going to thrive and succeed and have these great workouts where you're up there near your maximum fat oxidation per minute point, and maybe you can burn five more calories uh, if you were to elevate your heart rate five beats, but it doesn't matter. The main thing that matters way more is your desire to train, your ability to put healthy foods into your body, um, getting enough sleep every night, and not crossing that line where you drift into chronic patterns. Uh, Overall, I'm pretty happy with uh, this, says Marco, and I'd like to keep progressing and not plateauing anymore. During the last couple months, I've improved my aerobic endurance and was able to run this great Paris Marathon, but now um, I'm wondering what, what's going to block me from uh, continued progress. So I will say uh, finish on a high note because I know I don't want to sound like a, a downer guy telling you guys to continually um, put the brakes on and not be so um, um, trying to squeeze out extra heartbeats and all that. Um, if you are having good success like Marco reports and you're also um, uh, feeling like you've hit a plateau or that you're absorbing the training really nicely and you have extra energy to burn and you're wondering how to burn it, go ahead out there and push yourself with a peak performance breakthrough workout. I don't even care what kind it is. Maybe you should try to do a training run longer than you've ever gone before at a comfortable math heart rate. Or maybe you go out the door one day, you warm up for 10 minutes, and then go blast yourself for an hour running an hour time trial uh, as fast as you can. Or going to the uh, 5K next weekend and getting there on the front row and trying to stay with the leaders as long as possible until you fall apart. Uh, All kinds of things are possible. And they're going to stimulate a profound training effect when you push yourself really hard. And you'll get very quick improvements in fitness when you conduct uh, high-intensity workouts, or oh, I should say uh, difficult workouts of any kind, including the long over-distance ones. Uh, so go ahead out there and have some fun, but we want to stick with this big-picture philosophy that balancing stress and rest is the most important thing no matter what, and that training gains can be made and held on to when you're a healthy person rather than an overstressed, overtrained person. And personally, I'm going to put a plug in for whatever level you're competing at, I think the body responds really well and the mind responds really well to epic over-distance training sessions. So what I'm trying to say is when I was a 40K time trial guy on the triathlon circuit, because the Olympic distance, we time trialed 40K and we're squeezing as much as we can out of those pedals and our legs are burning for an hour straight, the way that I achieved phenomenal breakthroughs in my performance in the races was pedaling slowly in the mountains for an epic seven-hour mountain ride. We called it the Death Ride uh, in the Sierra Nevadas, where we were climbing these incredibly steep uh, river canyon climbs and then descending into another river canyon and climbing out. And it was a nice, comfortable day, uh, shooting the breeze with training partners, enjoying the nature, and not you know killing yourself with uh, high heart rate stuff. But when you're out there and you're able to put in seven hours of good work, at aerobic heart rates, um, the idea in your mind of pedaling all out for one hour, how that translates to an all out one hour time trial, I felt like there were some mental benefits to be gained because I knew that I could pedal strongly for seven hours. So I could might as well just open up the throttle and throw caution to the wind and really hammer for one hour. And my legs respond really nicely to that because I'm not frying those uh, very sensitive anaerobic muscle fibers that require a lot of recovery time 
from, for example, brief explosive workouts like a series of intervals or hill repeats where my tongue's hanging out and I'm trying to hang with fitter people and going home and just feeling totally fried and shattered and completely stressed with that, uh, that massive fight or flight response that happens when you do a really challenging high intensity workout. Not to say that uh, the seven-hour ride in the mountains is not stressful, but it's stressful in a different way. And I think a lot of us probably are under-trained on the aerobic side and over-trained or over-fit on the anaerobic side. In Maffetone's book, he calls this anaerobic excess, where you're a pretty darn good anaerobic athlete. Let's say, I remember from another uh, question coming into the podcast, the person reported that they can run a... Uh, I forget, it was a 125 half marathon or something quite impressive. But then when they put on the heart rate monitor strap and they did their math test, they were running 1145 pace per mile or something, which is uh, very disappointing when you can run 745s for a half marathon. It's like, what is this ridiculous? But as detailed in the Primal Endurance book, um, from the stories of Mark Allen and this Mike Pig and myself, when we first got into this aerobic training uh, concept, the pace was very, very slow because we had anaerobic excess. We were fit racing athletes on the professional circuit, but we had not sufficiently developed our aerobic system to perform at fat-burning heart rates with any uh, anything that was uh, impressive or uh, respectable. So it takes time to go work that low end and build up your fitness, build up your health, build up your connective tissue, uh, your immune function, things that make you a stronger, healthier person, and that will eventually, when you do return to uh, anaerobic effort, will pay off in that manner. Whew, okay. Um, it wasn't totally rapid fire, but we got through some really, really good questions, and um, that's that's how we roll here. We got to talk. We got to get deep in here. We can't just pass these things off with simple yes or no's and dogmatic responses. I want to get into the nuances every time because I feel like, uh, especially today's um, questions are something that everyone can relate to. How's that? Thank you so much for listening to the show. Talk to you next time on the Primal Endurance Podcast. This is Brad Kearns. Oh yeah, info at primalendurance.fit. We'll get your questions covered. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about Paleo Cooking Bootcamp. Oh, what fun. Finally, you have a chance to learn from a real professional about intentional cooking, where you maximize the efficiency of your time, dedicate two hours on the weekend to cooking, and Chef Katie French, the earthivore, will take you through this incredible whirlwind cooking session where you cook enough in two hours to have ready-made delicious paleo approved meals for the entire week paleocookingbootcamp.com this is a digital version of her award-winning course that was given to students live in the bay area and now wherever you are whatever you're doing you can have a step-by-step approach that makes it easy to succeed in the kitchen even if you're not a big foodie even if you're a little intimidated about doing recipes just push the play button and katie will take you through the cooking course it's a two-hour boot camp every weekend designed to last for a month and you will be dialed with your paleo meals just open up that refrigerator door imagine having all these delicious snacks and breakfast items 
dinner entrees, dessert treats, even. And let me tell you, I was on the set watching this whole production. It is the real deal. The food is absolutely amazing, and you will be surprised what you can accomplish in the kitchen with an intentional cooking method. There's no other course like this found in the world. We looked, believe me. So check out PaleoCookingBootCamp.com and enroll today. 